If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. When you drive the brand ranked number one in dependability by J.D. Power, you can stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see yourself behind the wheel of the brand ranked number one in dependability by J.D. Power. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Kia received the fewest reported problems among all brands in the J.D. Power 2022 U.S. Vehicle Dependability Study based on 2019 models. See jdpower.com slash awards for 2022 details. Welcome to this week's episode of Zach on Film. We're continuing to, to go into the movies in July. Joining me this week again is Steven Schleicher. Hey, it's hey, for kids. Hey, it's for kids, hopefully. Uh, over there is Matthew Peterson. Yeah, I haven't got a brain in my head. See? Yeah, hey. all the time. Just talking like this every day. And of course, over there on the coast, Rodrigo. Uh, hey, man, what's up? Oh, not much. Just <laughs> catching them all. Um, so this week... New, when well, it's not a new Coen Brothers film, but for me it is. Brand 1994, movie, yeah. The Hudsucker Proxy. Yeah. Starring uh, um, Tim, the guy, Tim Robbins. The guy from the Shawshank Redemption is yeah. how I'm right. like, oh, that's that guy. It's got Jennifer Jason Lee from either Hateful Eight or um, a Fast Times at Ridgemont High, either way you want to go with that one. Well, who was she at Fast Times? She was the um, sister of um, the main dude guy. Oh, okay. And then uh, <laughs> Paul Newman playing the bad guy. Oh, yes. Paul Newman, he is a sly devil in this movie. Yeah, he is. Uh, so Hudsucker... I don't think he's the devil in this movie. Oh. Because Ooh, the devil does show he? up. Oh. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about that in a few minutes. All right. Um, so Hudsucker Proxy is a 1994 movie from the Coen brothers, but it is set back in 1958, right? Because mm-hmm. the last final scene is kind of 90... Well, yeah, yeah, 1957 is when it... Really starts, but then that's in the final minutes. Oh, of right, 57. right, right. Yeah. Um, no, it's it's the final minutes of fifty eight into fifty nine. No, the movie starts at the end of nineteen fifty eight, and then goes back to the nineteen fifty seven when what's his face kills himself, uh, and then they're like, "Oh, we need oh, somebody see. to step in for this," and so there's a whole year cycle gotcha. for that stuff oh. to to. Uh, to transpire. So it does not take place in the 90s, is the main point. Back no. in the 50s, um, big old corporation, the Hudson, Hudsucker Enterprises or Hudsucker Company or yeah, Hudsucker Industries. Industries, Industries. Um, so the basic plot is Mr. Hudsucker grew this company up from nothing. Big, big man, big rich man. Uh, mm-hmm. Beginning of the movie, he is uh, his financial officer is reading off how great the company is doing. They're making all just fist loads of money. Everyone's very happy. They're all in their suits and smoking cigars up on the uh, 44th level. And uh, 45 with okay, the mezzanine. Like, okay, I was hoping someone would say something. Um, Hudsucker Hudsucker takes out his watch, winds it, and then uh, as the financial officer finishes, he gets up on the table. You think in celebration, but oh no. Hudsucker takes off at a dead sprint down this long table 
mm-hmm. out the window he goes. Yeah, played wonderfully by Charles Durning, who uh, we've Happy said before. Daniel. Yeah, we've said before that the Coen brothers like to use uh, <laughs> actors again and again and again. Yeah, it is. And we've seen Charles Durning in uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Mm-hmm. Art thou? As the uh, as the uh, blind guy, blind guy. No, not the blind guy. Um, but the uh, the uh, he was the politician, governor, the politician guy. Yeah, yeah. He was Papio Daniel. Yeah. Um. Thus, leading uh, after Hudsucker's death, the board uh, needs to figure out who's going to be president, so then they can dilute shares and all this business stuff, so they can essentially make a crap ton of money and take control of the company. Yeah, because the fear is the way that the company was set up that 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 when Hudsucker dies. Mm-hmm. All of his shares, which was like 51 or 58 percent of the company, would be open to anyone to buy. Right. Which would mean that the general public would have control of the company and not these guys. Mm-hmm. So they need a proxy to fill in to drive the stock down so that when it does go into general use, they can sweep it all up for a dime and owe, right. and you know, own, owe the, the company. Out. Right. Yeah. Right. And so the search goes on for who will be the HUD sucker proxy. See what they do with the title there, Stephen? Yeah, is really. that the Hudsucker proxy is uh-huh. the person they have to find to yeah. be president? Wow. It's like a proxy president. Yeah, yeah. It's not a the real. Hamdinger props. Yeah, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. you get it. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. what they're doing here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Rodrigo, who is it that they find to be this proxy? Uh, they find uh, Norval Barnes, who is <laughs> this kid who's just out of college. Uh, he comes all the way from Munsee, Indiana. And uh, it's like his first time in the big city, and he actually gets a a job at Hot Sucker Industries in the mailroom, which is this basically this horrible dungeon. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, through a, a few uh, hoops, uh, he ends up at uh, mm-hmm. yep, he ends up at uh, the at uh, Sid's Sidney office. Musburger. Yeah played by Paul Newman, and that's when he has the brilliant idea of uh, hiring him after some shenanigans. There's yeah, lots of shenanigans in this movie. I mean, he totally thinks that. So Tim Robbins' character is sent, Norval is sent up there because there's a blue letter. Mm-hmm. That means it goes right to the top, and one person has to do it, and everyone's frightened to do it because you never want to go up to the president's office or the vice president's office and get fired on the spot. It's always bad news when a blue letter arrives. So they get the brand new guy to do it, and instead of delivering the letter like he's supposed to, Norval pulls this little piece of paper out of his shoe, unfolds mm-hmm. it, and says, here's the next great idea. And we look at it, and it's a circle. For kids. And he's like, hey, it's it's for kids. And that's no, why that's why um, Paul Newman's character is like, well, this guy's a freaking idiot. Mm-hmm. He'll be perfect for this. He also sets a contract on fire that took years to make. True. <laughs> I, I think there's one thing. I want to say this whole movie takes place in the space of a month. Because they say in the opening, after Papio Daniel flapjacks, that they have 30 days to tank the stock price. It doesn't matter. Um, so, Neville, or not Neville. Uh, Norville. Norville. Neville. Neville Longbottom. Norville. Um, Norville Park. Essentially becomes the president. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're just showing him around, showing him around, uh, making a big deal. Hey, look at our new president. He's a genius. You know, he's a he's an idea guy. Uh and then eventually he does bring out his circle of paper and show the world uh, or the Hudsucker board his great idea for the hula hoop. And uh, eventually that great invention does take off and people are are very happy with the hula hoop. Unfortunately for the board, it's doing the exact opposite to their stock prices. It's right. driving them up instead of driving them down. And yeah. they need that price low. 
The Theo. extruded plastic dingus, I believe, is the uh, mm-hmm. given yeah. name. I think you're missing somebody completely. That's a big important part of the story, Zach. Oh, and who is that? That's Steven? Amy Archer, played by Jennifer Jason Lee. Yes, of course. The minute that that uh, Norval is is put in place as the president of the company, of course, the newspapers want to know who this guy is. Mm-hmm. And uh, Amy Archer says, well, "I can do this. I can figure him out, and I'll find out his whole story." So she goes and poses as another person from Muncie. Mm-hmm. Totally convinces Norville that you know he's uh, she's on her side on his side and in the process realizes he kind of is an idiot but is not an idiot mm-hmm. and unfortunately writes a scathing uh, piece for her paper that causes the stock to plunge and really she's like oh no he really does understand what he's doing he just has a different um, way of going about it and of course the there's a little love story that develops between these two uh, and she's the one that uncovers the plot of what the company is trying to do, trying to drive down the price of the stock so that they can they can buy it and pick it up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that's a kind of an important part of the of the piece. Yeah, absolutely. Rodrigo, what do you think of that reporter character in general for the, the structure of the film? Uh, it's it's interesting. Um, it's interesting because it's. A lot of things in in the Hot Sucker Proxy are kind of definitely by the end of the 90s, well-worn tropes. And so in one sense, uh, this uh, reporter who is like hard-boiled lady reporter uh, who is not completely happy at her job and kind of is looking for that love connection, even if it's subconsciously, um, that's something we've seen before. But on the other hand, we get to see that um, kind of she's all that situation in reverse right where like she's the one where it's like the girl who made the bet or um is actually fooling the the character into uh, you know uh, falling or, or in, into this uh, situation mm-hmm. um and she's the one that has the change of heart right yeah she does eventually come around like you said Stephen, to mm-hmm. to uh jesus i can't to remember norville's, norville yeah. norville's character and does get where, or at least where his heart's at, and mm-hmm. not so much maybe his brain, because he is kind of a—he's not dumb. He's a simple right. kind of guy. He yeah. draws circles and then makes mm-hmm. products out of them that are mm-hmm. are ultimately kind of genius. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, though, because of the success of the Hulu Hoop, it has totally gone to his head, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so she's like, "Oh, you're you're letting the big city and big business get to you." And you're not the person that the company needs. And you're not the Norval that I know, the guy that invented this hula hoop. And so there is a rift that forms between them, which is probably the weakest part of the story in how they come to blows, except that suddenly he's got this big head uh, and she just storms into the office and says, you know, I'm through. Um, and then later on being revealed who she is and and they get back together. Um, but it, it does set this up that, you know, when someone is given this power too quickly, perhaps it does go to their head and they get a little crazed and confused when they have the yes men and the media all saying, hey, you're the most brilliant person in the whole wide world. And then it all comes crashing down. So mm-hmm. I thought I thought that was an interesting, interesting aspect of their of their relationship mm-hmm. in, in this piece. Uh, so, you know, it does go up and down with it with Norville's kind of career where he gets up to the top. And then starts to come crashing down, and he's com- or they com- or they uh, accuse him of fraud and taking mm-hmm. the idea. When uh, Buzz, the elevator guy, pitches a uh, the bendable the bendy straw, straw. Yeah. <laughs> the bendy yeah. straw, it's brilliant. 
uh, to him, which essentially has the great circle design. Mm-hmm. And um, so he's accused of stealing even... They, they accuse him of stealing the design for the hula hoop. Right. That, and then they right. kind of right. get buzz in on mm-hmm. the charade of, oh, you took my great idea. I'm the mm-hmm. great uh, unsung hero of Hudsucker. Right. Uh, eventually, Norville is just crashing down to the bottom uh, and then tries to crash down on the bottom at midnight of the oh. year and um is going to go the same route as Headsucker and throw him off the top or throw himself off the top of the building. Mm-hmm. But Matthew, there's another character who becomes very important here who really introduced to the very beginning, uh, through yes. narration. Yes, Moses the clockman, who may be God, nobody knows, but yeah, M- Moses had started the the narration, and when it's clear that he's going to fall to his death. Moses, who has been taking care of the clock, and we've been told he knows everything that happens at Hudsucker, as long as it has something to do with Hudsucker, and he keeps that clock running ship shape, stops the clock, thereby somehow stopping the passage of time, which yeah, is, I think is, is, is entertaining as all hell. I, this sequence of the end of Norville sl- <laughs> plummeting to the ground and then the clock stopping and him... Freezing. Freezing in air. Mm-hmm. Uh, At the mezzanine. I think, like, snapped me out of a stupor of this movie of, oh, well, this is really, this is not where I thought this movie. Well, no, I, one, I never thought Norval was actually going to jump. I thought something was going to happen to mm-hmm. catch him. Mm-hmm. And then he jumps, and you're like, well. Well, he doesn't really jump. He's kind of yeah, he... pushed, in a sense. Oh, that's or, true. Or he's prevented from getting yeah. back in, and he falls. I guess that's he true. He slips and falls because yeah. of the the... The devilish character? Yeah, the, I, I would call him the devil. The um, Alucius uh, locks him out. The, the guy, guy that's, that scrapes. paints the signs yeah. and is kind of this yes. um, henchman for Paul Newman's this, character. He's kind of this this all-seeing character who just throughout the movie shows up and stares balefully at people. Right, and that's why, that's why I get this uh, god-devil metaphor that comes in this because every time you see Moses – uh, mm-hmm. And we really only see him two times. The first time is when a, uh, the uh, Amy character, uh, Amy Archer, mm-hmm. uh, interacts with him and she is below him, a, a level or two below him, looking up to him. Mm-hmm. And he mm-hmm. is surrounded by the big circle of light that's coming from behind uh, the clock. And he's having this conversation with her. And, and he's just like, you know, if you just ask the right questions, I will give you answers. And so he becomes this kind of like godlike, I'm giving you information, I'm giving mm-hmm. you knowledge kind of character. And when mm-hmm. we see a Lucius, um, he's always down on his knees. And for the most part, there's one time where he's standing behind um, Paul Newman's character when they discover mm-hmm. that uh, Amy Archer is really a, um, a newspaper reporter. Mm-hmm. For the most part, he's down on his knees and always looking up at people uh, menacingly and, and is kind of in a very lowly position. So when he does finally get the upper hand by closing the um, – closing the window on Norville, it's almost like the devil's won. But then when God stops time, mm-hmm. the two battle it out. And it's a good versus evil battle uh, there in the clockworks of the, the Hudsucker building mm-hmm. and, until when the um, until when good wins and the devil gets cast down to the wherever the devil gets cast down to. And of mm-hmm. course, time starts and stops a couple of times to where at the very end, Norville is just about a foot or two above the ground which mm-hmm. is not enough for him to re- achieve uh, terminal velocity so that when time finally does start back up, <laughs> mm-hmm. he just booms right down onto the ground. Right. And yeah. the nice thing is, during this whole confrontation where time stops, Hudsucker comes from the heavens 
to have a conversation with Norville and talking about what's important in life. And it's not all about money and achieving these high spots. It's about doing good and being good. And then he says, oh, by the way, did you ever deliver that blue letter? Uh-huh. And Norville's like, oh, no, I forgot. My first day on the job. I'm going to get docked. Um, reads the letter and finds out that whoever turned the letter over to Paul Newman's character would have, contr- have Hudsucker no. shares in the, in the company. Whoever no. they, whoever they, they, chose, whoever they chose as the president, right. Yeah, right. Would become the, the majority shareholder. Right. Which means that since they've chosen Norville as president. Yep. He is the one. So, yep. and it was, and didn't, correct me if I'm wrong, Rodrigo, but didn't Hutsucker in the letter assume it was going to be Paul Newman who would become yeah, president? He said, mm-hmm. Yeah, he said, I, you know, I assume it's going to be you and, you know, do, don't, you know, it's like, be a good person about it or whatever. And he's like, but whoever, like whoever you guys think should be the president, I'm with <laughs> you. You know, he's like yeah. real, you know, HUD had a, uh, he, he seems like he was a good guy, um, <laughs> but he just kind of let it away, from, let it get away from him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. His exact words are, I assume it's going to be you, but if not tough titty toes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which is an interesting proposition. Cause I would assume that Hudsucker and Newman's character are close friends, and he has had an idea of what his temperament is, because it seems he's the VP of the company, right? right? Um, he probably has a an idea. Yeah, and so you would think that he would understand Newman's character as kind of this greedy guy. I mean, immediately his a friend will say, at least business acquaintance is dead on the pavement, mm-hmm. you know, a couple hundred feet below him. And then already he's trying to devise a plan to rip his shares out from underneath him so that they can essentially they can have controlling or he can probably have controlling interest at the company. Right. Um, so he's kind of this greedy prick already. And when it, like his assumption is I'll just give him all my shares and my hard hearted friend will certainly become this guy who doesn't really care about profits anymore, mm-hmm. which seems like a like if it would have been just like whoever hands you this letter would be president is an interesting thing because it would have been someone from the mailroom, right. which is where Hedzucker essentially came from was right. the bottom. Right. Um, so at least I guess his plan worked out in the end. Yeah. And then Norville and um, and uh, Amy get back together and happily ever after, including uh, Norville's next project, which is another circle It's mm-hmm. for kids. It's the Frisbee. Yep, which turns out to be the Frisbee. Now, obviously, when people watch this movie, they want to make sure that, you know, people understand that uh, the, the Coen brothers want people to understand that Whammo and uh, was, I forget, right. is it Whammo that did Mar- both Frisbee and the Hula Hoop? Well, the Frisbee was invented by Marty McFly yeah, in sure. 1874. But yes, Whammo mm-hmm. has the patent for both toys. Yeah, and so they want to make sure that they're very clear in this story, especially in the credits that, Hey, this is yeah. a fictional account of how the hula hoop and Frisbee work. Mm-hmm. We needed it as right. our plot device. This, this story where time stops and, and the literal, you know, embodiment of God and the devil have a fist fight that involves flying chattery teeth is not actually a documentary is right. what they want us to right. Right. Sure. Now that exactly. You mentioned that I would love to see what the patent for the hula hoop and Frisbee actually look like <laughs> and see how like, simply they're scrolled out. You can, out you can look at, office. you can look up patents online. Yeah. They have to be somewhat, unless they're like, patents are generally like un- incredibly technical. So I can imagine yeah. they're not as simple as well, Norville's three circles. Uh, no, it's, to look uh, up it's, plastic no it's, it's basically that. It is a, it is a circle and it shows the diameter and the width and the hollowness of the, of the uh, hula hoop. And then yeah. it shows it spinning around a girl's waist. That's, and that is the patent for the simple. hula hoop. Did they show yep. the sand in there? Uh, it does not say anything about the sand. But that's the. Fifth, but I'm looking at figure number five of however many that were turned oh, in okay. for this patent. So, 
Uh, you know, the yes. stand is there to improve the experience. Yeah. What, uh, that was a great scene of Norval trying to say all of the different changes he'll make to the hula hoop for the mm-hmm. different people. What mm-hmm. was the one of just sand? I can't mm-hmm. remember like what group he was specifying. But oh, one no, of them was it was like be... it was more sand for people who can't hear well, oh, yeah. <laughs> Lar- and larger a diameter for the obese. <laughs> which is you know, which is really fascinating because. The Coens are making a commentary about big business throughout this entire movie. Mm-hmm. And and they really in that in that sequence where they're trying to figure out, well, what do we do next after the hula hoop? Uh, it really gets into what a lot of businesses get themselves trapped in is we have one good idea. Now, what are we going to do next? Oh, we'll make the screen bigger. Oh, we'll make it thinner. We'll do these kinds of things. Oh, we'll put this feature in. And they don't do anything to try to innovate or create a new item. They're stuck in. I'm going to just continue to iterate the product that we have wasn't that what the even the board did they, they had a, answered a bunch of ridiculous questions right. it was really designed right. like is it oh, for can boys we it, yeah is it for boys is it for girls uh, can we put an electric motor on it for the uh, i think that's the one that was the lazy and obese right matthew <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and um and so yeah it's just it's funny that that it that they're really poking fun of big business even in the 90s but we see that even more apropos today with um, all the technology companies Mm -hmm. that are just like, hey, our new watch, it's got a leather band this time. And Mm -hmm. ooh, we're supposed to applaud and clap and rush out and buy 10 million copies of it. (laughs) Now, the 90s, watch the thing. Really, um, you know, Hudsucker Proxy is right there, just kind of shoulder to shoulder with all of the big 90s movies about like uh, how like dissatisfied people were with corporate mm-hmm. america mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know it's like it's it's that line that gave us everything from fight club to the matrix to office space yep. um and it's just like yeah it, this was a real theme in the 90s oh yeah well we're coming out of the reagan era which totally depressed the country uh and, and put it into a recession uh and then we're getting into uh, we're coming out of george bush one and right into Clinton era. And so this movie came out in 94 and Clinton mm-hmm. took office in what year? 92. 92. So this is still reeling from those effects of the Bush and Reagan administrations just mm-hmm. crapping out all over the country <laughs> and giving big handouts to big businesses and these kinds of things. So, yeah, it, it you're right, Rodrigo. It fits right in with that time period. Well, uh, greed was good in the 80s. Oh, yeah. So... Do you guys like this movie? Oh, I do. I really enjoy this movie. And the reason I enjoy this movie is because it is at its heart. It's a 1930s slash 40s um, farcical romance movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, You go and look at and and especially I look at it not necessarily from let's bash big business, but let's look at um, the Stuart. I'm trying to think of some of the movies uh, that came out during that period where it's, you know, you've got the tough, the tough as nails um, female character and then you've got the kind of dopey male character and how they kind of run into each other and, and fall in love his and girl friday his girl friday is a perfect example of that bringing up baby bringing up mm-hmm. baby is the other one yeah and so for me it, it kind of just kind of is a and we talked about this last time how the coens like to latch on to different genres of film and just say hey we mm-hmm. we can do this and to me this is this is them saying hey we could do a 30s 40s style movie in the style of frank capra uh, and, uh, we could do it. Okay. And so for me, I really, really enjoy this. I think it's a cute, sweet little movie with a message in it. I think it's for me, very unfocused. 
because there there are actually a couple of messages in it, and they don't necessarily work with each other. I think that this movie is remarkable partly for the performances, especially Paul Newman. Paul Newman is amazing. But there are parts of this that just don't, come together for me and even though you know it's it's that that key moment of a a literal fight between good and evil it kind of feels like that comes out of left field out of nowhere and now is this this is before lebowski isn't it yeah yeah okay this is another one where this is immediately after barton fink you have that crossover between narrator and character again where the narrator knows what's going to happen or what in terms of the story has already happened, but is also a part of the story being told. And that always kind of just, I didn't necessarily hate it in Lebowski, but it bugged me, especially when we got to the end. But here it really does feel like there's a couple of different movies in here. There's chunks of what what feels like a, a take of Brazil in here. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I have that a really point, big thing yeah. about Brazil. I mean, that's what yeah. I just felt it's like such a big influence on mm-hmm. it. And, and really, that, that's, that the, that's those sets, right? Mm-hmm. There's, mm-hmm. Uh, and that sequence in the mailroom mm-hmm. where everybody's running around and doing that. But the, the Art Deco is part of it. And I think that, I don't know, I from a story perspective, however long it took, having him always have had the MacGuffin in his pocket that somehow implied that the ghost of Charles Durning knew what was going to happen. But he clearly didn't because he as much as says so. It feels like it, it. Well, it is a literal Deus Ex Machina. I mean, it is. It is. The guy literally descends down. I yes, mean, it is an, an actual angel from heaven. While time has stopped delivering the thing, and I love that from one perspective because you see that a lot in the old movies that they're that they're talking about here that they're riffing on. But then it's one of those things where it's so almost over the top, almost too blatant of a, here's here's the joke about how these movies end with that dun da da and then the perfect thing arrives out of nowhere. I don't know. It, it I like it. I feel like it's really charming, and I feel like there's a couple of performances in here that are top-notch, although seeing Bruce Campbell talk back and forth with Jennifer Jason Lee makes my head hurt. Oh, yeah, Bruce Campbell in this movie as a, as a mm-hmm. reporter, which is really great. And the other thing that we need to probably mention – Movie co-written not only by the Coens but by Sam Raimi as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes, there would be a reason. Rodrigo, why. what were your thoughts about it? Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely, uh, I, I will agree that it's unfocused. I think this movie has a lot of style, and it spends a lot of time setting up that style. And then when we get close to the end, it doesn't spend a lot of time resolving things. It resolves the money issue. But, for example, um, I'm pretty sure that Norval just goes back and to uh, Amy and is like, okay, well, I'm sorry. Like, without even saying anything, it's just like an immediate thing. And she takes him back, right? There's no, he doesn't, like, um, go through any sort of, you know, uh, way of, like, vindicating himself about that. It's just like the, the letter drops and he doesn't, and then everything's fixed. Um, and that, that to me, is probably the weakest part of the movie. If you don't think about those last few minutes leading to the ending too much, um, it's a very fun, very stylish, very funny movie. 
my my favorite joke in it by far is uh, when he calls that he's the president now and he calls out and he's like, well, you see, I'm the president of the company. And his old boss is like, I don't care if you're the president of the company. <laughs> you deliver that letter. <laughs> yeah, for me, I enjoyed a lot of aspects of it, but I felt like overall I was kind of just bored with it to a point really? of, yeah. Even though that everyone's like moving around at like they're in two speed, um, it, I don't know. Something about it just didn't catch me, and I did laugh a couple times, so that was fun. I thought the ender, in, ending was uh, interesting in the fact of you. Why would you think a, a the time would stop? <laughs> you know, that kind of film. So that well, was why that would was you, fun. Why would you imagine an, an angel would come? Well, I know, uh, like and once, jump, and wait, wait, yeah. would, would jump into a river, forcing you to jump into the river to save his life, so that you could tell the angel, "I wish I was never born," and then have the angel show you how awful your life would have been if you had never been born, and then let you take it all back. This is this is their version of "It's a Wonderful Life." Well, that's not good because I truly hate that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I think that movie has a, a a truer through line. As well, it might, and you're right. But I mean, if they're trying to say, "Hey, here's all the wonderful films that we liked of mm-hmm. the of the 30s and 40s," mm-hmm. and this is right. our take on that, or this is our homage to that, you you kind of have to you kind of have to roll with it and say, "Okay, a simple a simple, hey, I'm sorry," or just rush into the room and, and kiss and make up on as the bell right. strikes twelve. Is that kind of an ending? So what yeah. to me what really what made the definitely all the supernatural stuff okay for me was definitely the way the movie looked those sets mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. uh the 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 mad painting of New York yeah um, it's like it really gave it this like this is a stage production this is not real kind of stuff yes um, and I so like- when the guy actually gets lowered down from the sky it's like oh, okay this is a play you know there's there's something about it there's it uh, to me the sets really created this separation from reality um that that allowed me to be okay with uh with the, the like we said with the actual deus ex machina mhm i think that there there's a lot of style and a lot of moments that you are supposed to look at it and say i get this i i'm picking up what you're laying down and I think that this is going to sound weird coming from me. There's a point where that level of referentiality actually works against the narrative. Mm, I feel like yeah, it, you're right. it doesn't necessarily take the characters and the story, not seriously, I guess is not the word I'm looking for, but it, it definitely has a kind of a distancing effect. And I can see where, you know, Zach's perspective on this, that he couldn't really get into it. I had that issue at the beginning, and what really got me over it was that first sequence with uh, the dad from Say Anything as the editor talking back and forth to all of his uh, reporters trying to figure out what's going on. Say, hey, it's 1958, and everybody talks like this, see? That moment really drew me in because I'm like, oh, that's what they're doing. They're doing this take on old movies and saying, here's a new movie that has all of the hats from the old movie, but then you get to the point where the, you know, things aren't exactly what you expect. And then you get to a point where it's like they're wearing all these hats and they're dressed like, you know, Clark Gable, but the story being told really feels a lot more modern and Mm -hmm. postmodern even. And those two pieces just sort of 
it's a chopped basket. You have your octopus and your oranges and you have your frozen fruit smoothie. You have to make it all work together, but it's not necessarily something that you would naturally work with. So you're actually fighting yourself to get those 1950s and to some degree back to the 1930s with the fast talking newspapermen to get that to work with that 90s story that really is that postmodern after the me decade, after the, the, you know, the end of the greatest generation and everything that we thought was going to be this great, beautiful future full of flying cars and things really is kind of a broken down mess. And I don't, like I say, it's, it's a couple of different movies and all of them are enjoyable in different ways. Stylistically speaking, it's wonderful, but altogether, it's not really a, a to me, a rounded, complete, cohesive viewing experience. So we keep coming back to the idea that the Coen brothers through the last couple of weeks of shows kind of emulate different periods of film or look at well, styles I mean, of film. Even go back at Lebowski, it was the yeah. same way about the mm-hmm. noir detective tale. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it finally just clicked to me. There's another big director currently pumping out films who does this uh, homage to all these films, which is Quentin Tarantino, mm-hmm. who looked at different style of film and uh, kind of emulates them and then dumps a bucket of blood on it right? and then makes it kind of his own. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, Make sure that all the girls' feet are visible. And what is it about Tarantino? Because I feel like he is a much bigger name than the Coen brothers. Why is uh, it... You know, because... I mean, just I think, from my no, perspective, I, I, I think, think Tarantino, Tarantino has a bigger has a bigger name pulled than the Coen Brothers. What is it about that he's done in this kind of genre or genre of homaging genres to put himself kind of above the Coen Brothers? Sure, he's he as you said, he dumps a big buck, bucket of blood on it. I mean, if you watch the Coen, how many how many head decapitations were in this movie? Yes, we had one guy splatter on the street, <laughs> but we never saw the blood hit the camera. We never saw it, you know, splatter on the mm-hmm. side of the building. We we did not see his remains. At all. Right. We saw perspective shots of the people on the street looking down and shots down the side of the building. Mm-hmm. We didn't even see the impact. We heard it. Yeah. In the form of a scream of a woman. Right. Even. So there was a, there was a, yeah. So it, it was, wasn't, you know, it wasn't the, the evocative bone crunching death noise that you'd expect from a Quentin Tarantino. Now that's in this movie. When we watch No Country for Old Men, mm-hmm. you might change your mind a little bit on that. But um, Tarantino has always been, let's do it for the shock value. Um, of the of the franchises and the genres that he loves, so mm-hmm. I think if you're looking at box office success, then yes, Tarantino would be bigger. But if you're looking at critical success, I would probably say the Coens are probably more critically acclaimed than Tarantino yeah. is. Um, I would agree. And the Coen brothers feel like this is going to sound really terrible. They feel like they are artists playing with different periods and different genres and kind of putting on and taking off elements that they like. Tarantino, when he does his, you know, his kung fu, his black exploitation, his western, his grindhouse stuff, this is all full bore. My god, I love this. And here's everything that I love about this turned up to 11. So, you saw if you've ever seen the story of Ricky, you know that these can get bloody, so I'm just going to turn that up and have uh, the mermaid from Splash rip out somebody's eye and stomp it on the carpet and there's going to be blood everywhere and people's heads are going to get chopped off and death and oh, it's going to be awesome. It's all about that psycho enthusiasm and in some cases I feel like part of Tarantino's profile is that enthusiasm. He will go on, you know, television and he'll you'll do interviews and he'll be like, "Ah!" 
Well, he's like Mark Miller. He's mm-hmm. he's self-promoting. He's loud. He's he's vocal about everything that he loves. I can't tell you what the Coen brothers look or sound like. I can't. I don't think I've ever seen anything or recall seeing anything with them in it. But I can tell you what their movies are like. And, and is I that, is that in, in a way that may be better. Have they nailed kind of the idea of Tarantino bigger than Coen Brothers Rodrigo or something else to it that you think? I don't know. It's it's a it's a strange it's a, it's a difficult comparison because um, there are a lot of similarities in their styles, but I, I think the approach is very different. Um, but I think uh, you know Tarantino's success um, comes from. Uh, or or the the hype at least the fact that people are a lot more aware of it comes from the fact that his movies tend to be a little bit more controversial a little bit more violent and all mm-hmm. this stuff mm-hmm. and that draws that attention right um i i wouldn't say that any given quentin tarantino movie is better than any given coen brothers movie um I, it's just you know basically what they choose to do with them, and and I would agree that Tarantino is all about basically taking everything he loves and like smushing it all together into a super cool high octane movie, right down to the music. I mean, a lot of Quentin Tarantino movies just take pieces from other movies that he likes, mm-hmm. and he just wholesale takes them out of that movie and puts them in his movie. Um, which like when I first learned about it, I was like, well, you can do that. <laughs> That's insane. Um, so, you know, the Coen brothers are doing something else with it. They're kind of like, um, they've got the story that they want to tell. They place it in a period that gives it a, a texture, basically. It allows them another avenue for the jokes or for the references, right? Mm-hmm. So you could have done, oh, brother, where art thou set in modern, in, uh, modern times? But mm-hmm. the fact that it's set in the specific time period in the specific location that it is gives them another writing avenue to incorporate things. And yeah. I think that's that's something that the Coens are very conscious of. And I think it's something that maybe Tarantino doesn't necessarily do because that's actually his initial approach to things is being like, here's all this thing. Here are all these things that I love about the 70s. Now they're a movie. Um, mm-hmm. As opposed to the Coens, who are like, let's set this here and explore that aspect of it as well. Right. This isn't necessarily a movie about the 50s so much as it's a movie that uses the pop culture perspective of the 1950s to do a lot of its heavy lifting. Yeah. This movie taking place in 1958 is important because we, as the viewer, have our ideas of what 1958 should be like. It's that post-war baby boomer, everything is, you know, two cars in the garage and and a chicken in every pot or whatever it is. You know, that Eisenhower era sort of, we're going to continue being the greatest, the thing in the Fratamadu. If you set this in the 70s, it's a completely different movie. If you made this as a contemporary piece in 1994, it's a completely different movie. Yeah, and and that is the interesting part about this is that a lot of Tarantino's movies uh, exist in that framework of when they're set. But you could take a lot of these Cohen movies and mo- slide them to another decade, and the themes would change entirely. Hudsucker Proxy in the 70s is, n- is like completely different. It's saying different things because the time is different, the attitudes are different. 
mm-hmm. people's view of this of business is different people's view of corporate america is different like all of that stuff just changes it entirely not just the way the characters talk right if this had been 1975 and he invented the pet rock you could do many of the same story beats, but the way the world responds and the way mm-hmm. he as that corporate person and how that corporate structure would be set up would be different in the era of Carter and the great malaise. And I think that's part of the the part that really works here. You know, we talked about how maybe it's not necessarily something that's always entirely synthesized with the story they're telling, but it sets a great backdrop. And, you know, Rodrigo's point about it feeling like a play because I actually had that thought a couple of times that this felt like, you know, maybe West Side Story or I don't know, what's the one with uh, Big Julie and Sky Masterson? It felt like a really well done staging of a story from that era to where you have those moments where it's clearly a stage play and it happens where, you know, he falls and then he freezes in midair. Mm-hmm. You look up behind him and that's you see the miniature and the, the Charles mm-hmm. Durning angel coming mm-hmm. down. That feels he's in a, like he's in a harness, the angel's in a harness. Like I could I could just so see it, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can totally see that happening on a stage, well, a, a particularly well, good stage. Well, and in fact, Hudsucker Proxy, I believe, has been adapted for the stage. Because it's perfect. Yeah, you know, it's like, dead it's, solid it's, perfect. It's already done all the work for you. Yeah, there's really only a few locations, really, in the entire film. Yeah, they used uh, five sound stages for this um, to accommodate all the large sets, because everything is large in this movie, Mm -hmm. following that Mm -hmm. Bauhaus design. Massive. Um, But they did shoot some stuff on the streets of Chicago, and then incorporated some New York skyline stuff in addition to the miniatures that they built. uh, And this is one of the, er no, I shouldn't say earlier, but it was one of the um, transition films that you see where they're starting to incorporate some 3D mm-hmm. um, elements into this as, as well. The Hudsucker building, I think in the opening shot, is a 3D model okay. that was uh, put into place. But a lot of the stuff, like the falling stuff, is all miniature. And they had to right. take the take the giant New York set and turn it on its side so that they could get the falling action correct. Oh. Um, <laughs> And it, and it was cool. so big. I mean, they kept it around for a couple of years after the movie, uh, the Godzilla movie that was at 1997 or whatever that Six, Broderick seven. movie mm-hmm. was. They actually used the same model for the Godzilla movie oh. Uh, oh, that's cool. for that, too. So fun fact, a little, little bit of fun fact there. Um, and in suit walking around on that thing it works perfectly there. Speaking of the production design, the, you know, the, the time stops. Mm hmm. But I was like, did time stop? Because you still have... Yeah, the snow is still falling. The snow falling. is still mm-hmm. falling. I'm like, because you kind of get an interesting like, green screen type effect of them falling. You have all the, th- all the buildings. I'm like, yeah, we're not... We're in the early 90s. We don't have the best right. visual effects quite yet. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's just like real practical snow falling. There's no particle system yet that they're really kind of tapping into to do all this snow. So they can't really stop snow. So... That was the mm-hmm. one continuity thing. I was like, eh, yeah. well, well, we'll look over it because they're not <laughs> well, it makes stopping it more, 3D snow yet. It, it yeah. makes it fantastical. Yeah, right. it's another stylistic element where mm-hmm. you feel like you can't stop the snow. Snow doesn't stop. Sure. Snow is, that, that, or, that, is the, that is That is what's glorious about stuff like that, right, is that it allows you to do a read on it. It's like, well, yeah. why does everything stop? Why do the little, like, uh, clacking desk um, gravity... The Newton cradle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
what is that? Why does that stop and not this now? It's like, well, well you know, if you believe that this that, guy's God and blah, blah, blah. Yep, well, but he's, but, that's he, but again, that goes back to this, who is Moses really? Because he says he knows mm-hmm. everything about the Hudsucker company. So maybe he's, maybe he's not God. Maybe he's an angel that is tasked to look out for everything Hudsucker and his ability to stop time only affects those people who are related to the company. Maybe he's or in pr- a vicinity regional of ranch that, manager god. Yeah, he's a or something in the vicinity <laughs> of that building. Mm-hmm. He's literally the god in that machine. Yes, he is, mm-hmm. but not of all machines. Eh, I don't know. I have to say, I would like to know how much of that clock set they built. It's all. Re- that, it's all. I mean, everything it, that you saw is not computer. It's all real practical effects. I mean, it's mm. all practical built mm. stage. That's what's, why I said they had to have. Data? They had to have probably wood. Probably some metal, mm-hmm. um, but that, that's why I said some they, cranks and mm-hmm. some uh, cranky peoples. Uh, but that's why I said they had to have five sound stages to put yeah. it all in. And the models were six to one scale, so um, even you know a, a forty-five story tall Hudsucker building is going to be huge uh, in in those sound stage spaces. But yeah, that whole clock stuff was all real. Let's see, forty-five stories that makes about 450, 460 feet. And six to one would make that still like a what? Is an eighty foot building Probably. big enough? Um, did we watch Modern Times in Zach on film? Yes, we I did. feel like we did. Mm-hmm. We did. Um, I can't see giant gears anymore, right. and I'd be like, Charlie Chaplin could probably fit in that and just mm-hmm. squeeze down there and fix that machine. Mm-hmm. Harold How's Lloyd's it? gonna hang off the front of that clock. Uh, yeah. So Hudsucker Proxy. Not my favorite Coen Brothers film. Still, still though, in my top five. Yeah, in the in, well of the five movies that you've seen. <laughs> yeah, still in my uh, top five. I, am, I believe IMDb rating only has this, or I'm sorry, Rotten Tomatoes only has this listed at like fifty three percent. So yeah, it is not a favorite movie of of the Coens. But like it's Matthew not, said, there's a, there's a in kind of the theme of this is there are a lot of stylistic elements mm-hmm. that are really nice. I yeah. re- I mean I felt like the the homages to Brazil. Mm-hmm. We're kind of off the chain with all the tubes and just mm-hmm. all of the industrial giant building type stuff, uh, which I really enjoyed. Well, so if you want to push that further, the buildings, the interior, the architecture, all very vertical lines, right? Mm. Big, big up and down things, big up and down spaces. Then you have someone who comes in who may be a little bit more simpler, maybe a little bit more softer, who enters this, introduces this concept of a circle. The only other place that we see a circle in this world is the Hudsucker clock. Mm-hmm. Everything else is lines, 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 which contrasts mm-hmm. the circle motif that runs throughout the movie off quite a bit. So yes, anything that's a circle is very different than anything that is up and down and normal and what you expect in, in the business. It's almost, what is it, Matthew, the squiggle and the, and the dot? The, the dot and the line. The dot yeah. and the line. It's, it's almost like that little parable story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is... An element. There's a lot of weird things in this film. I just want to touch on this. I just need someone's read on this. Uh, Paul Newman's character is being held over the hedge of the Hudsucker, and uh, Norville grabs him by the pants and is holding him there. And then we have have this giant cutaway scene of <laughs> the extensive flashback, yeah, of him talking to his tailor about a, a single stitch or a double stitch, and he says, "No, just do a single stitch." And then you saw all of his pants seams ripping. You cut back again. It was like, "Oh, he's a nice man. I'll give him a double stitch." What the frick was that even about? Okay, I'll tell you what that was. Oh, Rodrigo, you want to go? Oh, no, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. That was uh, Musburger 
had he gone through, had the tailor followed through on his express orders, yes. which are basically based on Musburger being greedy and being cheap. one of those people who is cheap, had he followed through, Musburger would have died at the beginning of this film. But because right. of the kindness of the little tailor, who's like the only other really upbeat, positive character that we see other than Norval in this movie, Musburger survives that experience and lives on, but it's only because that Taylor was like, oh, I'll just give it to him for free. He basically, he received a gift that that cheap person who never gives up anything. And it kept him alive for the rest of the movie. Uh, clothes I, are I not was, made as, as, as durable as they are today. Also, it's, so. a, sure. it's a metaphor. I was, I was going to say, uh, that's actually an example of this movie being very structurally unfocused because <laughs> they, that is a device that is very strong and very jarring. This yes. like sudden cutaway, like extended cutaway with like uh, basically back and like call and answer like consequences mm -hmm. is huge. It is. It's like you you see it early enough in the movie, at least I did, that I was like, are we going to see more stuff like this? And then we really never do. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Thinking back on it, it does seem like a weird triangle and a circle that's all about, or in a movie that's all about circles and lines. Like, mm -hmm. it's, yeah, it it's just like this joke that they thought of. I, I, I feel it is it's just like, oh, you know what would be great here? And then they did it. And then the movie continues and there's no further reference or relevance to it. Interestingly, when Stephen talks about the, the shape motif, whenever we see Musburger's office, we only see a corner of that round clock. Right. But it's always dominated by the big straight line pointy second hand mm -hmm. as it comes around. Whenever that camera is up, you see that pointy second mm -hmm. hand and, pointing into the room. And if you want to go a step further, look at how Paul Newman's office is decorated very modern and, and um, again, in that Bauhaus design. And very then when angry. you go across the hallway to the president of the company, his is very firmly set in the 1940s art deck or the um, arts and crafts movement with um, yeah, it's like Frank Lloyd Wright. And wooden and yeah, it's more mm -hmm. Frank Lloyd Wright. So it's really contrasting. And if I'm not mistaken, you don't see the clock in um, in Hudsucker's office, in mm -hmm. Norville's office. So that sets no, it apart even more. That's interesting. Yeah. This film is very visual. That's, I think, another reason why yeah. I like it is yeah. because it's got mm -hmm. a visual, very visual, striking design throughout. And uh, the uh, the designers of this movie really did a great job. Yeah. There are a lot of. What's the word I'm looking for? Time dilation moments that are, yep. are, are weird. Because, you know, that, that extended flashback is one example of a few seconds being like 10 minutes of the film. But then there's also that point where there has to be several days going on when he's sitting with his head on the desk and she's reading the ticker tape mm -hmm. coming out of his machine. Mm -hmm. But it, it's just a couple of, you know, a couple of minutes of the movie. Maybe well, just the, the whole film. montage where everybody's laughing, which uh -huh. is also oh, great. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. Like, that is <laughs> yeah, great. That's great. really like a really strong device used properly to propel the movie forward. Mm -hmm. Just yes, like so weird one. and jarring and like <laughs> off-putting and great and funny. It's just like and everything. You're laughing along. You're like, oh my God, this is a joke. Look, they're going through it. Look, they're going through with it. Oh, this is so funny. Oh my God, Trump's in the White House. Oh, yep. wait, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Never mind. Relevant. Cut that, cut that part out. <laughs> 
Yeah. So yeah, you're right. The visual aspects of Proxy are great, and but I don't know. I just didn't really quite resonate with me like the like Fargo or uh, some other stuff we've watched from the Coen Brothers. It'd be uh, interesting Fargo. to do. Zach looks back on Zach on film like ten years from now. <laughs> and to see if you have the same feeling about all these. We just watch all the movies all over again. Well, no, again. just go back and watch it. You know, in ten years, will you have a different perspective of Hudsucker Proxy if you watched it mm-hmm. again? Because I don't know. Maybe you'll have more experience or some insight or whatever mm-hmm. that adds to that. Maybe the corporate will will have crushed yes, you more. Yes, have yeah. stepped on your your midsection and ground their heels into you. That could um, be it. And, and that may be something too, as you talk about Tarantino versus the Coen Brothers. Uh, mm-hmm. Tarantino tends to attract a younger audience while the Coens tend to attract an older audience. Mm-hmm. And that may be part of their differences as well. Yeah. Uh, so Hudsucker Proxy, I think worth watching. I think it's, it's worth, it's not a super long yeah. film. So no, I think it's worth your time. You can spend a couple bucks on Amazon and or iTunes and uh, mm-hmm. yeah. rent that real quick and give it a watch. Uh, next week, we're jumping farther back into the Coens, mm-hmm. uh, you know, discography, or filmography, I guess. Raising, of, Raising Arizona from mm-hmm. 1987. An ex-con and an ex-cop meet, marry, and long for a child of their own. When it's discovered that High isn't able to have ch- uh, children, they decide to snatch a baby. They try to keep the crime a secret while friends, co-workers, and bounty hunters look to use the child for their own uh, pr- um, purposes. Right. So Nicolas Cage mm-hmm. is uh, yeah. stealing a baby. To yep. practice to steal a Declaration of Independence. Yep. Isn't that baby a HUD sucker? I don't know. <laughs> I want to say that the rich family no, they steal the baby so. from is the HUD sucker family. No. I don't know. That'd be no, fun. No. You can say That's that. That's the Arizona. That's why it's. Oh, uh, you're right. Arizona. Nathan, Arizona. Uh, yeah. Oh, never mind. Have you, have Arizona you watched Jenkins. Arizona? Oh, Raising? yes, lots of times. Have the, re- have no. the rest of you guys watched Arizona, Raising Arizona? Nope. I've seen it a few times. Oh, you haven't, Rodrigo? I have not. Oh, great. This, this, uh, I'll give you a heads up. This has one of my favorite songs in it that is impossible to track down. Okay. But it is a take, it's a take on an old 1920s Western theme song, Mm -hmm. but you cannot find the song on the recording for the Raising Arizona soundtrack. Mm. You'll know it when you hear it. It's, it's the famous, it's the famous soundtrack for this, the famous song from this movie. All right. Well, I'm, uh, I'm optimistic about Raising Arizona. So next week, we'll continue to go into the movies as uh, we look at Raising Arizona. In the meantime, why don't you head over to Majorspillers.com. You can find more podcasts just like this. So much great content over there each and every day. All sorts of podcasts to get you through your great, soul-crushing job at corporate America. Um, <laughs> while you're at Majorspillers.com, reading reviews and listening to podcasts, click on that Amazon.com link. Today was Prime Day, so you could have got some great deals. Uh, using that link. On the day this was recorded. Well, on the day sure. this was recorded, that's true. Yeah, you already missed it, but you're, <laughs> you're too late. But there's always great deals over at Amazon. Use the link at majorspoilers.com. Uh, buy your Coen Brothers movie set. I think it's like a five-pack of films. Yeah. If you do that, it's not going to cost you any extra when you use that link, but a little bit of that purchase money won't go to Amazon, but it will come straight to Major Spoilers to help continue to make great content like this for you. Uh, so next week, we're looking at the Coen Brothers film Raising Arizona on Zach on Film. This podcast is copyright 2016 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC.